0: This is
1: The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It seems as good an occasion as any to look back 50 years ago to one of the biggest scandals in presidential history. And the more we learn about this particular scandal, the more parallels there are to what we're seeing now. And this year happens not only to be the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, but uh, this week happens to be the 48th anniversary of the resignation of President Nixon. And I can't think of a better person to break down some of this with than the man who knows Watergate better than anyone. In addition to being a, a scholar who's written a terrific book on this called The Strong Man: John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate. In addition of being a distinguished member of the Washington Press Corps, having worked for Fox News, having worked for Sinclair Media, and now as the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. He's also someone whose middle school teacher, who happens to share my name, said had his walls covered with nothing but Time magazine and other similar publications covering the Watergate scandal. I am very, very pleased to be joined by the one and only James Rosen. James, Hello.
0: Frank, the, the only slight exaggeration in that very fulsome praise. I'm grateful for it. Thank you so much. Good to be back with you.
1: Uh, it's great to talk with you. I appreciate you uh, making some time for us at uh, what I know is an odd hour. Uh, before we get into the uh, what's happening with Watergate and what some of this newly declassified information suggests about w- new ways that we should be looking at this uh, 52-year-old scandal, I have to get your take on the uh, raid at Mar-a-Lago. At this point... What do we know about the scope of the investigation into Trump or the timeline of any sort of potential investigation as it relates to this raid?
0: Well, published reports have suggested that um, the uh, that the raid stemmed from an ongoing uh, criminal investigation based in Washington, D.C., um, focused on a potential mishandling of classified information by former President Trump, that he took some volume of records with him When he left the White House to Mar-a-Lago in Florida, Uh, the National Archives have already stated publicly that back in January, when they had already begun uh, investigating this matter, uh, they retrieved 15 boxes of materials from Mar-a-Lago and took them back to the National Archives custody. Uh, Published reports have suggested that some of the documents that were retrieved on that occasion had been ripped up and taped back together. Uh, The raid follows uh, by a day or two uh, some published reporting by Maggie Haberman, who covered President Trump for The New York Times and has a book coming out uh, where I guess it was Axios that published photographs backing up uh, Haberman's claim that President Trump or former President Trump was uh, given to flushing certain documents down the toilet. And they published photographs of what appeared to be a toilet with documents at the bottom of it, that had uh, on them handwriting resembling that of President Trump, former President Trump. Uh, It's not clear that the Axios disclosures um, precipitated uh, the execution of this search warrant, which was signed by a federal magistrate, Uh, but um, the two come very close in time. You asked about a timeline, Uh, as I mentioned, the National Archives retrieved those boxes from Mar-a-Lago back in January. So this has been going on for the better part of a year. As far as how long it will stretch on, that's anyone's guess, as can be discerned from the various other investigations of former President Trump that continue and have been going on for quite some time.
1: You were the first person that I heard mention um, back in 2015 when the primaries were first getting started. You had said that the only thing thing that seemed to hurt Donald Trump, and this was when every day there seemed to be a new pseudo scandal, some sort of a gaffe or some sort of a scandal, which uh, a lot in the, a lot of folks in the press, a lot of folks in the punditocracy said would doom Donald Trump's candidacy, and nothing did. You were the person that said the one thing that that Trump supporters may not stand for is conventionality. And I think you've been proven correct on that one. Um, As far as you see this, obviously nobody can predict the future, but do you think it's inconceivable that Trump could A, run, B, get nominated, and C, get elected, all while being under indictment?
0: We should point out that former President Trump has denied all wrongdoing, both in this current case that spawned this raid, and in the various other investigations proceeding in multiple jurisdictions uh... where he and his associates are mm-hmm. facing scrutiny from state and federal prosecutors and he has not been charged with any uh, formally with any wrongdoing outside of the two impeachment trials that were held and in both of which he was acquitted um, you raise an important question uh, and the question you're raising frank is about the standards for our modern politics um, and, and it's, a, it's a shocking question, really, and a and, and telling sign of our times because you're asking if it's inconceivable that someone under indictment could run, secure the nomination, and win. And it wasn't so long ago that such a question would never even mm. be asked because it absolutely was inconceivable that a politician under indictment could uh, secure a nomination uh, in any race virtually uh, and, and win. Uh, The only analogs, I suppose, were uh, somebody like Marion Barry, the mayor of Washington, D.C., who was convicted on drug charges, served time, and then came back and and won the mayoralty again. Um, And so remember then-candidate Donald Trump's famous statement, I believe, from 2015 or early 2016, when he said words to this effect, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. My supporters would still love me. (laughs) Um, And – it's true that Donald Trump's base core of supporters in and out of the presidency have never deserted him no matter what revelation surfaces. Uh, and given the current state of the Republican Party, and particularly its primary electorate, it's a fair question to ask whether even the stigma that would normally be associated with indictment would serve to peel off some significant percentage of the former president's support should he run for the nomination. And as a student of politics, as a trained political scientist, as a longtime Washington reporter uh, and student of the presidency, my best guess at this, clearly labeled as such, would be that uh, in such an, a scenario, probably only about 4 to 7% of the primary electorate that would uh, already be disposed to support the former president would regard such a new condition on him as a bridge too far mm. probably only four, probably only 4 to 6% wow. wow. and that that is again shocking to people with uh, memories that str- uh, date back beyond 2015 when the idea of any politician running under that kind of um, stigma would be unthinkable uh, if people
1: are just tuning in with Chung, with James Rosen, a Newsmax chief White House correspondent, author of The Strong Man, John Mitchell, and the Secrets of Watergate, and the um, writer of a terrific column for Real Clear Politics, which I'm going to link to on my Facebook page, and you could read it, which deals extensively with how we should view the Watergate scandal. In the prism of history and with all the declassified information that's come out since then. In general, uh, James, and it's interesting, you know, a a former former uh, congressman that represents the borough that I live in and that you formerly lived in in Staten Island, he actually ran for uh, reelection. Under indictment, that was uh, Michael Grimm, and that, there was also the story you mentioning Marion Barry, who some of the callers brought up, made me remember Buddy Cianci in Providence, mm-hmm. Rhode Island. So I, I guess there's uh, there's more of a, a, a more of a forgiving nature for folks than uh, than some others may think. Now, um, how do you think the Trump investigation, either this one or any of the other Trump investigations, the Russia, the Mueller probe, the impeachments, January sixth, whatever else, compares to? the investigation surrounding President Nixon in Watergate, both in how the kind of the main focus of that investigation handled it and the kind of scope of the investigations themselves.
0: The differences outweigh the similarities, I would mm. say. Um, but that's natural when you're comparing historical episodes to begin with. Uh, seldom do they align perfectly for comparative purposes. But uh, that said, that that kind of... Uh, Definitional throat clearing having been accomplished, Frank, Um, I would say that uh, but for the one month period between President Nixon's resignation and his receipt of a full, free and fair presidential pardon from his successor, Gerald R. Ford, uh, but for that one month, the water where Nixon was concerned, as opposed to his aides who still had to go and stand trial and so forth, for the president himself, but for that one month from August to September 1974, the Uh, the entire Watergate investigation, if you will, took place while Mr. Nixon was president. Here we have a situation in which um, uh, a good number of these probes appear to have originated um, since Donald Trump, Donald Trump left the Oval Office. So um, there's a big difference. It makes a big difference when you are being pursued as the president and when you're being pursued as a former president. Secondly, Um, we have to remember that prior to Watergate, although the country had been dismayed and made more cynical by a number of events from the Kennedy assassination to the disclosure of the Pentagon Papers, where it was um, made plain for all to see in in the form of 7,000 classified documents about the war that A series of American presidents had lied to the American people about our deepening involvement in Southeast Asia. Uh, Although a number of events like that had made the country more cynical, it was still a much more um, believing uh, electorate. We were a much smaller population at that point as well, we have to point out. Um, But there were only three television channels. Uh, Nobody carried around phones. Nobody was bombarded with information all the time. Uh, Over 90% of American households had two TV sets by the time the Senate Watergate hearings came along. But in general, people were more trusting of of the president of the United States and of institutions. And President Nixon's poll ratings were uh, surprisingly good, if you look back, uh, well into what we consider the period of the Watergate scandal. Uh, And... Uh, really, it was the testimony of his counsel, John Dean, which my scholarship has shown to, to have been false in many respects, um, and the release of the tapes that, that doomed him. But um, in, in President Trump's – in former President Trump's case, um, again, he is facing a lot of these uh, uh, investigative juggernauts, if you will, while he is out of office. That puts him at a – a, one would imagine a, something of a disadvantage. Mm. There are juggernauts in the law from time to time, Frank. After Watergate, every municipal jurisdiction and county level had to have their own public corruption unit. It was a juggernaut. It was a zeitgeist. You know, after Watergate, we have to prosecute public officials. There's all this corruption. We have to, we have to be heroic about this. Then, you know, more recently, we've seen a juggernaut in the law surrounding FARA, uh, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, uh, which requires that lobbyists or, or, or others who are doing work on behalf of a foreign government or a foreign country must register with the with the federal government as as such. Um, and there's been an effort to put teeth into the FARA laws, um, with only middling success, including, for example, the uh, the acquittal of Greg Craig, Craig Greg, excuse me, Greg Craig. That's a difficult one, uh, who the former counsel to President Clinton, who was tried and acquitted on FARA charges. The problem there being that consulting and lobbying is such a fine line or nebulous line really between them uh, that it's difficult to prove when someone has strayed into lobbying and therefore should have registered under Farah. But still, it's it's a juggernaut. It's a zeitgeist. They're trying to put teeth into Farah. And I have suspected for some time that a new juggernaut we're going to see and we have been seeing since the Mueller probe is the idea that you can indict a sitting president or that you at least can indict a, a, a former president. Um, and I think you know we are seeing a number of prosecutors in a number of jurisdictions almost vying for the opportunity to push that legal envelope. Um, and it so happens that it is Donald Trump who is the former president uh, on whom this, this test of, of, of the law that we've never had is going to be practiced. That's how it appears anyway. Again, we we must point out that Mr. Trump has denied any sure. wrongdoing in all of these various investigations.
1: A uh, am with James Rosen. He's the author of The Strong Man, which is all about John Mitchell. I've read the book. It's terrific. Uh, James, it's been a few years since I read the book. It, it has a proud spot on my bookshelf. But for people... That I'm are, grateful. Thank you. Uh, for people that have not read the book, I think most folks know or some of the younger folks may not uh, that John Mitchell was the Attorney General of the United States, ultimately became a federal prisoner, went to prison for 19 months. What is essentially the thesis of your book and what does it do to change the traditional narrative and the traditional thinking about the Watergate scandal?
0: So you can find all of this information and the links to my books and so forth uh, through my Twitter feed at James Rosen TV. My book, The Strongman, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate was published by Doubleday in 2008 uh, it took me 17 years to research and write. Mm-hmm. I kid you not. It was always a, a part time effort. I did a lot of other things in those 17 years. Um, did I you? Interviewed I interviewed 250 noticed. people. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Frank.
1: No, I was saying, I was teasing. I said, Did you do other things in those 17 years? I hadn't noticed.
0: <laughs> I, you know, I participated in Little League. No, I'm kidding. I, uh, <laughs> But, you know, I, I got, uh, two, I, I got a, a higher education degree, I got married. We had our first son. There was a lot going. I had a big, important job. I was uh, very busy. But uh, nonetheless, it was a labor of love of sorts. Uh, I had harbored a, a kind of fascination with Watergate since childhood when some of my earliest memories are of watching those hearings. And um, uh, I interviewed 250 people uh, through the Freedom of Information Act. I uh, became the first researcher to uh, get my hands on uh, several Dozens of thousands of pages of uh, testimony and other evidence that had been collected during Watergate, with some of the major players, and had never been seen by anyone else or published, um, and uh, and as well, new Nixon tapes that were uh, historic and and uh, bombshells in certain ways that had never been published either. And from all of it, um, you know, there, it is a portrait of the Attorney General of the United States who went to prison the highest-ranking U.S. official ever to serve time, John Mitchell, who had been Nixon's campaign manager and law partner, and the closest thing to a friend that Nixon had in the government, someone that Nixon looked up to, um, and someone who's, uh, whose advice to the president exceeded far beyond the typical purview of the attorney general. John Mitchell was uh, somebody that knew about the opening to China before Henry Kissinger did. Um, in any case, um, so he was a powerful guy, Uh, And he went to prison, and um, my book concludes on the basis of a lot of that evidence that uh, the Watergate special prosecutors uh, and their chief witnesses, uh, two of the president's men, uh, John Dean and Jeb Magruder, uh, conspired to uh, present fabricated testimony, uh, false testimony, uh, before the jurors in the various trials and before the various hearings. And um, uh, although Mr. Mitchell was not entirely innocent— he was, in a, in a very profound sense, railroaded. Um, uh, the book also talks about uh, the various spying operations that took place against President Nixon. Um, and these are, these are documented. And uh, I think they are especially relevant when we talk about a deep state today. Uh, the documentary record shows that um, the FBI, CIA, uh, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff all spied on President Nixon and his aides. Uh, during that important fateful first term from 1969 to uh, 1972, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had detailed a 27-year-old Navy-trained stenographer, a yeoman, uh, to the NFC staff of Henry Kissinger, who was running the National Security Council. And on overnight flights where Kissinger was flying to Pakistan to uh, open up China, this young man accompanied uh, Kissinger as a kind of a body man. Um, and a courier and, and a typist, a stenographer. Uh, and while Kissinger slept on those flights, this young man actually rifled Kissinger's briefcase while he slept and took documents out huh. um, and uh, photocopied them. And um, as a courier and retrieving crumpled up carbons from waste baskets in the era, um, this young man, this yeoman, uh, managed to route uh, unauthorized 5,000 classified documents from the NSC and other places where he could get his hands on in the Nixon White House um, to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, this is no—this is a very little understood episode, uh, sort of obscured by the larger Watergate bombshells of the era, called the Moore-Radford affair. Moore being the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, Admiral Thomas Moore and Yeoman Charles Radford, the, the Moore Radford Affair. Uh, I was the first researcher in the year 2000 to show up at the National Archives and request the Nixon tapes from the period of about two weeks starting in December 1971, where Nixon is informed of this military spying on, on him and Kissinger for the first time. And the series of orders he, he issues Uh, most of them on the advice of John Mitchell, who's present in that meeting. Uh, This is one of the most – this is the evening Oval Office tape of December 21, 1971, with just the heavy hitters in the room, Frank, Nixon, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell. And it's it's one of the most important documents of the Nixon presidency. Uh, Nixon is so shocked by the revelation that the Joint Chiefs for 13 months in wartime have been spying on him that he calls it a, a federal offense of the highest order. And he demands that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Moore, be prosecuted for espionage. And as was his way, Mitchell sat and puffed his pipe throughout all of this <laughs> and let the others do the talking, uh, particularly Ehrlichman, who ran the plumbers group that actually discovered all of this. Uh, in addition to stage managing the the uh, break-ins at the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist and the Watergate complex, the plumbers also uncovered the military spying. Um, in any case... Uh, John Mitchell finally speaks in this meeting and by way of Nixon asking for his advice. And Mitchell says, Mr. President, I agree with you that the idea of these papers getting into the hands of the Joint Chiefs, it's as if they were coming in here and robbing your desk, Mr. President. And the name of that chapter in my book is called Robbing the President's Desk. So uh, add to that the FBI spying on Mitchell, which we have the documentation that goes all the way to Hoover. Uh, we have uh, CIA infiltrating the Nixon White House, the Nixon Reelection Committee, um, uh, and the plumbers themselves. Uh, I think um, we get a picture of President Nixon as the most spied upon of modern presidents. Donald Trump would probably take issue with that. He's known <laughs> to consider himself the biggest and the best in all categories, and I think he would not wish to be outdone in, this, in the category of president most spied upon. Uh, But the documentary record of all this is very rich and and laid out both in my book, The Strongman, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate, and the essay you mentioned, which uh, ran in connection with the 50th anniversary of the break-in and arrests back in June uh, on RealClearPolitics.com called Watergate at 50 – revelations from newly declassified evidence.
1: Uh, James, do we know either based on the research that you did in preparation of your book or in any of the information that has been declassified since then, what the military and the intelligence agencies were seeking in their spying on Nixon and his associates? Was it one thing? Was it multiple things? Was there a specific agenda on the part of these agencies or the so-called deep state in order to in order To justify, at least in their view, that spying.
0: Nixon and Kissinger brought almost the entirety of foreign policy decision making and national security decision making uh, into uh, the National Security Council where it hadn't always uh, traditionally um, been dominant. um, And moreover, held it very closely between the two of them and Mitchell. Uh, And the Joint Chiefs resented that. And the Joint Chiefs themselves were coming off a very tumultuous period uh, in their relations with Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. Uh, They believed that – and and in fact, uh, H.R. McMaster, who was President Trump's national security advisor, about 30 years ago published an incredible book called Dereliction of Duty, which cataloged the, the, the many ways, using White House tapes of that period and other documents to show how President Lyndon Johnson uh, and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara at that time, this is the middle 60s, uh, deceived the Joint Chiefs about Vietnam War planning systematically. Uh, the Joint Chiefs got close to actually resigning en masse under President Johnson, but one of them had something close to a heart attack overnight and they decided to put off the idea. So they had been very, um, uh, they had felt very burned by their experience with President Johnson. And when Nixon took o- over and moreover started to, keep foreign policy and national security decision-making very close to the vest between himself, Kissinger, and Mitchell, uh, the Joint Chiefs responded almost it, kind of in a standard, biological, instinctive way uh, for bureaucrats. Um, they used some other means to get at the information. When you ask were they after something specific, they were after a seat at the table. They wanted to know all of the full range of, of policy making and planning and decision-making that was going on um, behind their backs. And that's why that spying occurred.
1: In your column for Real Clear Politics, which uh, I've linked to and encourage people to read, you also spend some time going into a book that came out about 10 years after Nixon left office called Secret Agenda by Jim Hogan. What did Secret Agenda allege? And why hasn't the thesis of that book been more broadly adopted by both journalists and historians?
0: Uh, the book you're referencing is called Secret Agenda, Watergate, Deep Throat, and the CIA, and was published by Random House in 1984. Uh, its author was Jim Hogan, H-O-U-G-A-N. Uh, and Jim is still alive and thriving. This book, Hogan used the Freedom of Information Act starting in 1978 to access uh, and to be the first person to access the full FBI investigative file on the Watergate break-in that, for the Bureau, began on June 17, 1972, and which came to encompass 30,000 pages. Um, Hogan was the first person outside the government to get a look at those 30,000 pages. And using uh, those documents, he was able to recreate the actual events of the Watergate break-ins and uh, surveillance operation at the Democratic National Committee headquarters that took place roughly from around May 25, 1972, until the famous arrests on the pre-dawn hours of June 17, 1972. The fact is Watergate was not just a break-in. It was, in fact, a surveillance operation that went on for three weeks at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Again, Hogan's use of the FBI files, of all the interviews they conducted and all the research uh, they conducted, Back in the time of the the original investigation, 30,000 pages of it, uh, enabled him to really recreate the break-ins and the surveillance on a kind of minute-by-minute basis, which no investigative body – the Senate Watergate Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, the Intelligence Committees, the Church Committee – none of those those famous investigative bodies – ever really spent that much time on the Watergate break in itself and the surveillance operation at DNC. Why? Well, the burglars were caught red-handed, and what we really wanted to to determine was political culpability for this affair and who's going to be punished for it politically and and criminally. And it was a trail and a morality tale that led to President Nixon. And the burglars, with their CIA backgrounds, one of them actively on CIA payroll at the time of the break-in and reporting on the activities of the plumbers to his CIA case officers, uh, their identities, Uh, the actual mission of the break-in and the surveillance was unclear and best left alone in the eyes of both the press and the Democratic Party. Uh, Both the Democrats and the Republicans at the time of Watergate opposed a full investigation of that break-in and that surveillance. Mr. Hogan's research showed uh, he originated what is known in academic circles as the call girl theory of Watergate, and uh, it, it asserts basically – and there, again, there's a lot of documentary evidence for this – that the Democratic National Committee in the spring of 1972, a specific telephone there uh, inside the Watergate office building was being on the sixth floor was being used to set up dates between – uh, Democrats, young Democrats, uh, state party chairmen and others who'd come in from out of town uh, f- uh, at, to Washington, D.C. in the spring of 1972 and who were uh, looking for you know, an evening out on the town, that this telephone was used to set up dates between such individuals and a call girl ring that operated about two blocks from the Watergate known as the Columbia Plaza call girl ring. The Columbia Plaza is an apartment complex about two blocks from Watergate. We have the arrest records from this girl Ring and so forth. So Secret Agenda published so much, such an extraordinarily large volume of newly declassified evidence about Watergate, much of it startling and revelatory, um, that um, uh, it was greeted in its own time, 1984, a period when lots of Watergate legends had been cemented and people were dining out on it and no one really wanted to see the story change that much. The secret agenda was greeted with the kind of staggered disbelief that we reserve for apparitions, Frank. Um, and re- reviewers at the time tried to put it in context and said, look, even if even half of this is true, this book adds a major dimension mm-hmm. to our understanding of Watergate. And, um, Hogan, at the end of his book, challenged few other reporters to take up his work and, and so forth. I did. That's what I spent those uh, 17 years doing. And um, my, my work substantially corroborates Mr. Mm-hmm. Hogan's work. But that's sort of the subject of the essay in Real Clear Politics, which was also used as an afterword to a new edition of Secret Agenda that was just published in paperback – by Open Road Books, Uh, and you can find that and Mr. Hogan's previous book, Spooks, which was the first published in 1978 in the first examination of the use of former intelligence officers by corporations. that also has been republished, reissued in paperback by James, by Road.
1: I, I literally have hours worth of questions to ask you uh, about everything that you've said and uh, some of the other things that you've written on this, and I hope you'll agree to come back and we can have a, a lengthier discussion. I'm always just so captivated by everything you say. However, I'm going That's to... You're very kind. Uh, I'm not going to let you out of here. The, the kind of the uh, interrogative du jour, if you've seen every presidential debate of late, is these lightning round, one Word questions. If uh, I'm going to ask, uh, end this interview with two lightning round questions. And now, to, when uh, you
0: say a one-word question, in my one-word response, one word
1: excuse, excuse, excuse me. It's still, uh, it, you know, when you get as little sleep as I do, you, uh, you, you, <laughs> you confuse question and answer more than you would think. Um, if you had to pick the most accurate motion picture that depicts the events of Watergate, what would hmm. what do you think it would be?
0: Gosh. I don't know that one's been done yet. Gosh, there's there's a novel that was published that incorporated the whole call girl theory into the setting of Watergate and accepted it as a fact. Um, and I can't come up with the name of that novel right now. Um, I do recommend Thomas Mallon's novel on Watergate. I think he captures the era nicely. Um, in terms of films, you know, my, my work is a validly revisionist. And, you know, the one phone that was wiretapped in Watergate was that of R. Spencer Oliver of the DNC. And that's a name that doesn't appear in any of Woodward and Bernstein's work. So, um, you know, I, don't re- I kind of regard that uh, all the president's men in the book and therefore the movie are, are deeply compromised. Um, so we await a, a really solid treatment of Watergate. Um, I- I'll tell you, there was, a, there was one called, um, oh man, Secret Honor, done in 1984. It's a mm-hmm. one-man film. And Philip Baker Hall, who some hmm. of our listeners will know from uh, from Midnight Run. And Seinfeld. And Seinfeld played former President Nixon, musing um, to himself in his study an incredible performance. And that's the movie Secret Honor, 1984. Uh, finally, you can get it on VHS, I bet. Uh,
1: finally, James, <laughs> our first hour, we had a lengthy discussion all about pizza, brought out some very passionate a uh, p- passionate commentary from callers and others. If you had to pick uh, the favorite pizza establishment in any part of New York City, could be Staten Island, could be Brooklyn, could be Manhattan, what would it be?
0: This is a losing proposition for me, Frank. Anyway, I, I slice it, <laughs> no pun intended. I'm going to anger four of the five boroughs. and <laughs> make myself a wanted man throughout the larger uh, metro area. I I would, uh, there were some, you know, I I grew up on Staten Island, but I haven't lived there in a long time. Uh, So I'm not even sure if uh, some of those places still exist. We used to go and get white pizza, right, with ricotta on top over a Wise Guys (laughs) on Staten Island right over there. uh, The place that's now defunct, we used to go to at like 2 in the morning, was uh, in the East Village called St. Mark's Pizza. And they truly had like these enormous jumbo slices. With the toppings on top, and then on top of the toppings, they throw another mound of cheese. You know, <laughs> Love wow, it. these are this is, these are tales of a misspent
1: youth, uh, <laughs> tales of a, a better a better New York City. It sounds like to me, James Rosen. Uh, it is always a <laughs> treat to talk with you. Thanks for being so generous with your time.
0: Thank you, Frank.